Hey, it's me, Annie, and welcome to the second in my series of podcasts. I want to start out by saying thank you to everybody who's been listening, and thank you for all your sweet comments and your kindness and your support. And I hope to do my best for you every podcast to make sure that you're enjoying what I'm saying, but also learning really cool stuff. That's my goal, and that's what I plan to do. I also want to say thank you to three guys. These are the three guys that introduced me to the art of podcasting because I listened to their podcasts, and I was impressed, and it spurred me to start one of my own. So those three guys are Mark Marin and Joe Rogan, and last but not least, Jay Moore. And I listened to their podcasts, and I thought, I love this art form, and I want to participate in it. So that's what started me off. So thank you, guys. Thank you for being you, and thank you for being brave, and thank you for having awesome podcasts. And I will continue to listen to yours and get inspired. So thanks again. The title of this podcast is How I Learned to Cook. And I learned to cook from a very early age. I learned to cook from age three. And I learned from my father. My father was an amazing cook. Anybody that ever had the pleasure of eating his food would attest to this. And he was a kind of cook where you became entranced by anything that he would make. It's almost as though the food that he created was seductive. And he had an enormous following of people that couldn't wait to come to the dinner table to taste things that he had created. He was an eclectic cook. He liked all kinds of cuisines and food preparations and ingredients and he liked to shop all over the city, he liked to go out to farmers, and he liked to find the best things and experiment. And the way that he started to teach me how to cook was, uh, he had five practices. And most people don't have five jobs, but he had five practices as a psychiatrist. He practiced at the Women's House of Detention, so he used to go there and treat the women that were staying there. He uh, had a practice at Rikers Island. He had a practice at the VA. He had a practice at Mount Sinai. And he had a practice at home. He had his own office at home. And the way this figures in is that the reason why he was working at the VA was because he had been on the draft board at uh, the time of the draft for the Second World War. And he had certified the psychiatric stability of people that were going to war. Now, we won't even get into that because that's a much bigger subject, but that's what he was doing ostensibly. And he was also certifying them medically. And what he felt was the most ethical thing to do was to be there when these guys came back from the war and help them as a psychiatrist to be able to deal with what they had seen, what they had experienced, what they had done, and become people again. So he did that. And the way this figures into him learning, uh, him teaching me, excuse me, how to cook, is we used to take little trips together every Sunday in the car. 
And we used to take trips to different places in the city. And one of our favorites was Chinatown. So we used to drive down to Chinatown. And on the way to Chinatown, we would drive through the Bowery. And if we ever stopped at a light in the Bowery, a very unusual thing would happen. Um, At that time, the men that lived on and in the Bowery were called bums. At this time, they're called homeless people, but when I was young, they were called bums, Bowery bums. And they would be in various stages of sleep or delusion or dream states sprawled over the pavement, sometimes with bottles in their hands and sometimes um, face down, and it was pretty intense. But if my father stopped the car at a red light, the most unusual thing would occur. People that were lying in the street would, with bleary eyes, look and see that it was my father driving the car. And they would sit up, and they would stand up, and they would walk over to the car And with very, very lucid voices, they would say, Dr. Fox, Dr. Fox, it's me. Thank you so much. I'm doing so much better. And they would reach in to shake his hand. And he would shake their hands, of course. And sometimes two or three of them would come over to the window. And he would nod to them, and he would acknowledge them, and he would remember their names, and then the light would change, and... He would wave goodbye to them and say, I'll see you next week or whatever, and continue to drive on. And this would happen every time we stopped. And I always thought it was fascinating that each one of these men had been touched by my father's work to the point where just his presence in the area that they were in was enough to cause them to tidy themselves up and stand up tall and walk over to the car and give him a firm handshake, and it was quite incredible. And as a three-year-old, it was even more incredible, because I was starting to get a picture of who my father was, not only in himself, but also to other people. And I thought to myself, you know, when you grow up, that's what you do. You help people. That's what everybody does. Everybody helps people. Now again, if you listen to the first podcast, you know that when I was young, I thought, my experiences were the same as everybody's experiences. I thought that my understandings of life were the same as everybody's understandings of life. And since my father was a psychiatrist and he helped people, I figured that's what you do. So that was already set in my mind. So we would continue to drive, and we would drive down to Chinatown, and we would park and go to specific places in Chinatown restaurants where the restaurant workers were people that were also patients of my father's. He treated a lot of people with tuberculosis. And a lot of the people that came through as immigrants had tuberculosis. And um, so he had treated them. And what he continued to do is he would go into the kitchens of Chinese restaurants where these people were working And he would make sure that everybody was okay. And the owners of the restaurants would rely on him to keep the health of their their staff in in good shape. And so we would go into the restaurant. He would 
disappear into the back. And I would be sitting at one of the booths. And in short order, he would be back out and sitting at the booth with me. And we would be given food, the likes of which nobody had ever even realized the restaurant was capable of making because there was nothing from the menu. It was incredible, beautiful, glorious food, absolutely amazing, made with such care because it was being made for the doctor, which is what my father was called. He was always called the doctor. So we would sit and we would eat that food, and it was just coming and coming coming, more and more and more food. The table would be filled with platters, and we would taste amazing things. And a lot of times we didn't even know what we were eating, but it was incredible food. So what my father used to do, starting with me when I was three years old, was we would be sitting at one of these tables and eating this food, and he would say to me, okay, what are you eating? And I would have to describe to him what I was eating. I would have to say, this is broccoli, or this is whatever it was. I would have to tell him what I was eating. And, of course, I was three, so I didn't go into great detail, but I basically nailed it. I basically told him what I was eating. As I got older, that same questioning got a little bit more specific. So it went from being what are you eating, to what are the ingredients. And I would have to break the dish apart in my brain to figure out exactly what the ingredients were. Okay, so there's garlic, and there's ginger, and there's scallions, and there's whatever. And I would really come up with the ingredients. And then as I got older, it got even more intricate. And he would ask me, he would ask me, to close my eyes, and he would give me something on the plate, and I would have to eat it and tell him what I had just eaten without looking at it. That was pretty fun. I used to like that one a lot. So we did that for a couple of years, and then we came to the best part, which was, how do you think they made this? And I was about, I would say about seven by the time we got to that part. And I told him how I thought that they made things. Then by the time I was eight, we would eat the food, and then we would go to a store, and we would actually buy the ingredients of the dishes that we had eaten, and we would bring them home, and we would recreate the dishes. And this is how my father taught me how to cook. He taught me that anything that you ate, anything that you tasted, could be reproduced because your mouth had a memory, and your nose had a memory, and your eyes had a memory. And you could reproduce anything you had eaten by using those sense memories from your mouth and your nose and your eyes. And that's what we did. So that's how he taught me how to cook. But the first dish that he actually taught me how to cook, standing at the stove, which was pretty much when I was three years old, was his most famous dish which was spaghetti sauce. It was what he was known for. He was known for his spaghetti sauce. And he taught me how it looked when you cut the onion, and he taught me about the garlic, and he taught me about the herbs, and all the different aspects of what went into a good sauce. And of course, he was not a vegetarian. In fact, people people 
always ask me, were you raised as vegetarian? Were you raised as vegan? No. I raised my kids vegan, but I was not raised vegan. I was raised really eating everything and anything, although I didn't like everything and anything. And there were many things my father would cook that I would actually have to leave the house when he was cooking, like tripe, which to me smelled really foul when he cooked it, but he adored it. I would I would enjoy most of the vegetables that he would make. I would enjoy um, things like the potatoes that he roasted or soups that he made. He made incredible soups. But one of the things that he used to make for me that I used to love the most was something he called French pancakes, which was crepes. And I remember being very young and waking him up from sleeping and a nap in the big chair in the living room, waking him up and saying, could you please make me French pancakes? And he would get straight up out of the chair and walk to the kitchen and make me French pancakes, which was pretty incredible. And he nailed them every time. Even the first one was perfect. It was ridiculous. To this day, I've never tasted anything as good as his French pancakes. And I, I am the proud owner of his crepe pan, which to me is is like a little Buddha. I look at it sometimes, and I, I remember all of the wonderful things that he made for me using that pan. So it gives me a, a little focus on thanking him over and over and over again. Getting back to the spaghetti sauce. So he would build the sauce very, very specifically. And one of the things that he did was... The meat part of the sauce was something that he felt was really the the base level of the sauce. And when I say base, I, I'm really speaking in musical terms because it was the bottom taste. It was the base. And so the way that he would build his meat aspect of the sauce is that he would start out with the onions and the garlic and all that, and then he would add several different meats, and he would saute them, and he would add tomato paste to the meats, and he would add herbs to the meats. And he would flavor those meats very, very richly. So by the time he added any tomatoes to them, they already had such a rich flavor that the tomatoes only enhanced the richness of the meats for the meat sauce. The way that I've translated that myself was that I had to come up with an alternative to the meat level, the base level of the sauce. And that's what I'm going to share with you today, what I do as a vegan to create that base level. But just another couple of words about my dad. What he did was he added the herbs in the beginning when he was sautéing the meat, but then he also added them again at the end. And that way he had two layers of flavor with the herbs. So he had the long cooked herbs that cooked in with meat. And then he had the herbs that he added later, which was more of a top level, a fresh level where he'd be able to taste them more clearly. And that was something that I learned from him. I also learned from him that it's, it's really good to add the tomato paste twice. So he added the tomato paste with the meat, but then he also added a little bit of tomato paste right at the end. And that gave a fresher feeling to the taste of the tomato paste. So you had the rich, deep 
tomato paste feeling of the tomato paste that had actually roasted in or sautéed in with the meat and caramelized. And then you had the later taste of the tomato paste that was more fresh and more tomatoey. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. He also used to lace the sauce once it was done with some olive oil and just let the olive oil get stirred into the sauce without cooking it. Now, one of my things with olive oil is I don't like, and don't ask me why, I don't like the smell of olive oil when it's used for sautéing. I don't like the smell of olive oil when it's heated. But I love olive oil. I love olive oil. I eat a lot of olive oil. So what I do is I don't cook with olive oil, but I lace things with olive oil once they're cooked. And I think I also get that from my dad a little bit, because he did that when he was teaching me the spaghetti sauce. So let's go into what I do as an alternative. What I do as an alternative to that meat layer is I start out with tofu. Now people think, well, tofu, tofu doesn't have much flavor. And I say, that's the point. Because what I do is, I usually, for sauce, I usually take soft tofu, and I use the Nassoy soft tofu. I take that, of course, I rinse it very well, and I bring some neutral flavored oil to heat in my pan. Usually that will either be some canola oil, or some sunflower oil, or some safflower oil, but something really neutral, and not much of it. And I take the block of tofu and I break it apart with my hands into that hot oil. And I start stirring it around because I want to sear it a bit. I want to get that kind of caramelized edge to it. That's going to create a lot of flavor. While that's sauteing, I add the first round of herbs. And the first round of herbs would be basil, oregano, I use paprika in sauce lately because I just love paprika, so I use that in the sauce. And I also use fennel powder. And the reason why I use the fennel powder is I love the way that tastes, but also I love the aroma of it. It it makes the sauce more delectable. So I add the fennel powder, and I keep sautéing all of those things together. What I then do, once the tofu has started to sear a bit and brown a bit, I see that it's gotten a little bouncy because it's let go of its water. And once it starts getting a little bouncy, I take a potato masher. I think everybody has one of those. So I take a potato masher and I mash the tofu down into the pan a bit. And then I drizzle it with soy sauce. Now, The most important thing when you do this is to remember that you want to add enough soy sauce to give it a a brownish color, but not so much as to make it taste very salty. So it's something that you have to do by eye when you're first learning this technique, is that you have to put in a good size drizzle, but not so much that everything becomes too salty. I'm going to stir that around a while until it dries out, and the pieces of the tofu also look a little bit more dry, and then I add tomato paste to that. Usually for a a pan of sauce, I'll usually add about two tablespoons of tomato paste, and I'll start sautéing that, and I'll keep stirring that and sautéing that 
until it starts smelling roasted. And I don't know how to describe that smell to you, but you'll smell it. You'll smell it when you do it. It's a really nice smell. And you can smell the sugars and the tomatoes caramelizing. You can smell that adding another layer of flavor to that tofu. So I keep doing that for a while. And then I find that it's starting to look like the texture of chopped meat. And so I have my choice. If I'm going to be building a sauce that's going to be based on whole tomatoes, I'll take that part of the sauce being the meat part that's not meat out and I'll start building a sauce from there with onions and whatever. But a lot of times what I do, because I like the richness of it, is I'll add a jar of organic tomato sauce. The reason why I do this is because I don't want to cook the sauce a very long time, but I want it to have the flavor of being cooked for a very long time. So I'll just add a jar of organic spaghetti sauce to it. And I I really do like the 365 organic tomato sauces that they have at Whole Foods. Not all of them are vegan, but the ones that are are really, really nice. And I would urge you to try them and see what you think too. So I'd add a jar of that. And I would let that cook for a bit. I would say maybe uh, 15 minutes. And then I add another one of my magic ingredients. And this is one that most people don't really think of, but it's very important. I add a jar of baby food carrots. Haha, you didn't think I was going to do that, right? Well, I do it. The reason why I do that is in traditional spaghetti sauce, grated carrots or chopped carrots are often used to give a kind of richness and sweetness to the sauce. And this is my version of doing that. So I'll add organic baby food carrots to the sauce to do exactly that. And it works. At that point, when I add the baby carrots, I will also add some mirin. Mirin is a wonderful ingredient. It's a Japanese uh, sweet rice wine that adds two things. It adds a sweet flavor, but it also adds a kind of sheen. It adds a kind of, of, again, a caramel kind of top note. So I add that and I let that cook down. Now, of course, at times when I can get really good mushrooms or when I can get really good olives or good capers, I will add those things also to the sauce. If I'm adding the mushrooms, invariably I will add maitake mushrooms. I love maitake mushrooms and spaghetti sauce. And if I was going to add them, I would have added them once the tofu had pretty much finished cooking, but before I would add the soy sauce, because I want them to cook down with the tofu and then be glazed with the soy sauce. But you don't have to do that. I mean, if you find really good ones, you can. And I find really good organic ones at Sunrise Mart. There's a Sunrise Mart right near my office on uh, 41st Street. It's wonderful. I can stop there on my way home from work, and I can pick up my maitake mushrooms, and I can go home and I can make spaghetti sauce, and it's really fun. So I do that. So I get back to the pot here. I get the the baby food carrots in there. I get the mirin in there, and I let it cook for maybe about another three, four minutes. And then I 
turn it off and I let it sit on the side while I'm making my pasta and my vegetables and all the rest. Now, before I actually serve the spaghetti, I decide whether I'm going to be serving the sauce on the side or whether I'm going to be tossing the spaghetti or whatever shaped pasta I'm making with the sauce. My preference is always to toss it. I really love to do that. And if I'm doing that, or if I'm serving it on the side, the last thing I do is I bring it back up to heat. I taste it. And I taste and see whether all of the levels of the herbs are correct. If it needs a little bit of oregano, if it needs a little bit more basil, whatever it would need, I would taste it to correct it then and let that cook for a couple of minutes and also heat through. Then I would turn it off and I would lace it with two things. I would lace it with the olive oil like I talked about before. I would also lace it with some ume vinegar, which I talked to you about in our first podcast. And the ume vinegar gives it a kind of piquant, kind of... um, uplifted feeling. It makes it taste extremely fresh. It makes it taste a little bit um, more maybe sour, but not in a, a dull way, sour in a fresh way. And it enhances the flavor of the tomatoes enormously. It also corrects a little bit of the acidity because as I discussed with you in the first podcast, what ume, ume plum, ume vinegar is capable of doing is alkalinizing things. And so by adding the ume vinegar to the spaghetti sauce, what I'm really doing is I'm making it less acid, more alkaline, easier to digest. So people that even avoid tomato sauce because of the fact that they feel that they get heartburn from it, never get heartburn from mine. It's because of the ume. It's also probably because I put magic vibes in it when I cook, but that's another story and that'll be another podcast. But I love infusing my food with magic because that's another thing that my father used to do. I know that he worked magic in the kitchen. I watched him do it. I watched him control the energy in the kitchen. I watched him I watched him put his energy into the food. And it was so palpable, it was so tangible the energy that he put in, that when my father died, which was um, when I was 12 years old, before he died, he made uh, a last batch of spaghetti sauce. And that last batch of spaghetti sauce resided in the refrigerator for almost a year after his death. And Nobody could bring themselves to either eat it or throw it out because it was like my dad was still there. He was in that spaghetti sauce. That's how tangible his energy was. And I would like to think that when people eat my spaghetti sauce, they have the same feeling about it as I used to have and as other people used to have about my dad's, that there was magic in it. And that magic was something that you could taste. That magic was something extra special and that you felt really, really blessed to be able to taste it. So that's a little hint of of how to do things in such a way where you can infuse the food that you make 
with a kind of magical layers and and flavors and richness that you desire and also make it the kind of food that people crave and the kind of food that people respect because they respect the fact that you've made it in such a way as to make something, again, magical. I believe everything that you make should be magical. So I hope each one of you has had a magical day. I hope each one of you will have a magical evening. And uh, I'll see you next time. I love doing these podcasts. I'm going to keep doing them. I love talking to you guys and I love sharing information. And I love the fact that I can sit here in front of a microphone and instill the kind of, of blessings in any of my listeners that I have received in my life. I love passing the blessings on. That's exactly what I'm doing. So take care. Have, have fun in the kitchen and have great experiences out in the world. Love ya. Bye.